gonna, we're going to focus on the Word here, but the Word has a unique ability and timing of God in our study of the Gospel of John to bring us to an event in our lives this weekend that was rather unique for those of us who lived in this time period, uh, living in New Orleans, really living in this country, it still has a reference point for August the 29th, 2005. And this is, uh, it's almost a, a BC moment. I mean, when you talk to people here in New Orleans now, you kind of, before the storm and after the storm, everything's before and after, you know, what, what were you doing before? And, and what are you doing now? Where are you living now? And it's like there's a demarcation line in our lives that this event uniquely affected and touched us. And uh, we are still living in the effect of it. But spiritually, we want to make sure that we see what God has to say in moments like these. So if you'll allow me this morning, as I'm sure the news has already done this, uh, we're going to have a little video for a moment that's going to take us back. And for some of you who haven't been in the church for too long, some of this will catch you up on a little bit of history on what we walked through as a church during that season. Uh, but <clears throat> there's a portion of the video that will be played now and a portion at the end of the service. So let's, let's go back a few years to, to 2005 on this day. than any words could ever convey. Good evening, Hurricane Katrina, one of the most powerful and dangerous hurricanes ever on record, slammed into the Gulf Coast this morning with winds as high as 140 miles per hour. The damage is immense and may take years to undo. New Orleans, below sea level and now largely underwater. A levee break overnight finished what Hurricane Katrina started, flooding about 80% of the city under as much as 20 feet of water. People trapped in their homes scrambled to attics and roofs where some may still be waiting for help. Not only are we going to get hit, we're going to get hit with a big one. Happening right now, a desperate and deteriorating situation in New Orleans. Water is rising and time is running out for hurricane survivors. On Monday, August 29, 2005, Hurricane Katrina pummeled the Gulf Coast. The members of Lakeview Christian Center in New Orleans had already evacuated and were scattered across six states. to despair and Though I might fail to trust your promises You never fail to hear my prayer In every trial and loss My hope is in the cross Where your compassions never fail So more than watchmen for the morning I will wait for you, my God And when my fears come with no warning 
just to watch, isn't it? Open to John 14 this morning with me. On this day, August the 30th, 2005, we woke up to the news that we didn't dodge the bullet after all. We were going to bed Monday night and really being amazed Dodge the bullet, everybody said. And then waking up Tuesday morning, August the 30th, to find out we didn't dodge the bullet. It was the big one. It was the one everybody feared. And the event began to unfold. And I can, I can just remember the days after of... He just sort of stared at life puzzled. Like things didn't make sense. I can remember looking at the scenes that were being shot from the city. and I can remember coming back into the city and staring from the 17th Street Canal overpass there into a neighborhood that had water up to the rooftops. You know, you just, your mind looks at it and like a bad math equation, you know, it doesn't make any sense to you. You just can't seem to get your mind around it. And with this news, all of us, whether we were... Many of us were in Houston. I remember being together in Houston for several days and just trying to think through people's lives. You know, did did everybody get out? Did everybody in the church get out? And we're scrambling, of course, nobody's phones are working. The loss of of life is an uncertainty. The loss of property, whose homes have been lost, what precious belongings, memories have been lost. What about jobs? Am I going to lose my job? Is my company going to close up? And if this company closes up, and this company over here, which does most of its business with this company, well, are they going to close down too? And then what about all the guys who work for that company? And, and you just begin to, to raise a series of questions. And then what will happen to the church? And days of getting some contact with you guys who are scattered all over the country, wondering, could you come back? Would you come back? What would we have uh, here in New Orleans to build for the kingdom of God? It was an incredible and unique season in a bunch of ways. But what was, what was not unique about it was the fact that it involved human suffering. <clears throat> you know, Katrina didn't introduce human suffering even to our lives. I can remember Gina and I were able to travel to a number of churches in the year after Katrina. And the people in these different locations were very sympathetic. They were very affected by the event, what took place in our lives. And, and sometimes, I don't want to say overly sympathetic, but, but in a way, uniquely sympathetic to us. And there was some uniqueness to Katrina. But one of the things that I couldn't escape in talking to folks who had been in other places who never experienced an event like Katrina, was the reality that probably most of them had experienced something equally as disturbing in their own hearts. 
But see, there's other events that take place in our lives that don't have to be natural catastrophes. You know, even just thinking through as we've walked together as a church, there's been so many events that have just sort of introduced our hearts to heavy suffering. You know, years ago, walking with Sandy Riches as her grandbaby was shot in a carjacking and watching him die in the hospital. That was hard. Listening to the diagnosis for Brenda Gresset, for Shane and Lisa and Mary and those who were friends to her. Um, I bet Katrina was easier than that news was. See, the reality in our lives, and Katrina reminds us of this, is that there will be difficulty in this world. There will be trouble in our hearts that will be very, very difficult to bear. And the Bible doesn't close its eyes to that. The Bible prepares us in advance for it. And one of the things I think I could commend the church about was the amazing response to suffering that took place. You know, I don't know if I ever heard this. I have to leave room for possibly, but I don't remember interacting with anybody who was asking the question, why? Why did this happen? Why did this happen to me? Why did it happen to us? And that really wasn't the response. It was amazing testimony of a people who had set their hope in God in the midst of great loss and difficulty. See, the Bible tells us these things are going to happen. Job said, Man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. King David said, My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? See, sometimes life, even for King David, looked like this is what life is like when God takes the day off. This is, this is the experience we have when there is no God. That's what this feels like. And even Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. The Bible is not uninformed and it's not surprised about these events. J.C. Ryle in his commentary on John says, Heart trouble is the commonest thing in the world. No rank or class or condition is exempt from it. No bars or bolts or locks can keep it out. Partly from inward causes and partly from outward. Partly from the body and partly from the mind. Partly from what we love and partly from what we fear. The journey of life is full of trouble. So in this passage today... We have caring counsel from the Son of God as he knew that his disciples would encounter heart trouble. And what kind of advice does he give to us? What life-giving words are here for us? Let's read John chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. 
In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. And if you know the way to, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Let me just make a comment about that because I won't have time to, to build on that thought. Him going to the Father was the trigger mechanism in the economy of God for the sending of the Spirit. So much of what this chapter is preparing us for is the ongoing presence of God in the life of a believer through the presence of the Spirit. That's why Jesus had to tell his disciples, it's better that I go away. It's better. As hard as that was to believe, it was better because the day that was coming was the day of the Spirit who has been with you, but he will be in you. So much of what Jesus is trying to lay the groundwork for in comfort has to do with the day in which the Spirit is coming. But I want to draw our magnifying glass down to the beginning of this passage because that's where we most live. Let not your hearts be troubled. Now, what is this troubled heart that's being referred to here? Well, the word there, in the original language of the scriptures, the Greek language, it means to agitate. It means to cause one inward commotion. Right? I think all of us can, can remember times when you feel like your stomach has migrated to a different location in your body. You have that, that sense, I'm just so upset. We use all kinds of terminologies and language that really are describing heart trouble. It's a sense of taking away his calmness of mind, to disquiet, make restless, to stir up, to render anxious or distressed, to perplex the mind of one by suggesting scruples or doubts. This is the trouble that Jesus was referring to. You know, one of the things I think as I, I'm sure the, the, the chemistry of the moment of trouble has several ingredients to it, but I think one that, that particularly needs to be there most of the time for trouble to really exist in our hearts is the ingredient of uncertainty. It's when things suddenly become uncertain. Things that were predictable to us are no longer predictable. 
The events in our life, the things about us that we've always, it's always been, you know, day after day, it's just a straight line. All of a sudden, it stops. And there's, there's, there's no revelation beyond this. Listen, you don't know how difficult something is. If we could just hear somebody tell us, okay, listen, it's three days of difficulty, and then you're done. Right? Immediately, just the certainty of that would change the way you feel. Right? So I think uncertainty is a huge part of a troubled heart. And Katrina, if Katrina was anything, it was the introduction of uncertainty. All of a sudden, things that were familiar to us and predictable to us, they all became question marks. And that was a unique thing. Unlike personal suffering, Katrina had that strange ability to touch about 12 categories in our life all at once. And suffering usually doesn't come that way. Right? Usually suffering comes in one category and everything else stays the same. Or, you know, if you're in a church or in a, in a family, suffering comes into your life, but everybody else's life is staying the same. So they're able to relate to you in a certain way. Katrina undid everything, didn't it? Just about. And it raised questions. You know, none of us wake up in the morning trying to figure out, okay, as I'm driving away from the house today to go to work, will I, will I come back here tonight? <laughs> You know, is this, is this the driveway I'm going to be pulling into? And when you pull away from your job, you don't go, will I come back here tomorrow and have a job tomorrow? Uh, will all my relatives still live here in the city next week? You know, we don't think these things. These are those straight lines that we just come to expect. This is, this is going to be predictable. But Katrina introduced us to this realm of uncertainty. All of a sudden, everything that was predictable in our lives, was filled with uncertainty. Well, this is, this is where we are in John 14. We are on the eve of incredible uncertainty. And there's been some preparation, a little bit of groundwork has begun to be laid as Jesus has begun to sort of unscrew the confidence of his disciples. One of you will betray me. What? What's he talking about? I'm going away, and where I'm going, you cannot follow. You will follow later, but you cannot follow. What do you mean? All of a sudden, Jesus is beginning to let them know. It's, and he's been doing this for a while. It's about to become terribly uncertain all around you. This is, this is the eve of the Passover meal. In a couple of hours, they will be in the Garden of Gethsemane, and a mob will come and arrest Jesus. Suddenly taking him away. Where is he going? He'll be whisked away to some false court that was thrown together. This conspiracy of corrupt individuals who have thrown together a court. And their ruling is going to be upheld. And in a few hours after that, the Messiah, the one that they have chosen to follow and have put their whole life on hold, is going to be executed. Can you imagine in less than 24 hours from the meal that they ate with Jesus, that he said, how I've longed to eat this meal with you. Less than 24 hours later, he'll be dead. Less than five days after all the pomp and circumstance of entrance into Jerusalem, where crowds are gathered and they're lining the streets with palm leaves and they're hailing him as King and Messiah. Not even a week has gone by. And he will be executed in the way that criminals were executed. Now, can you imagine the uncertainty that is building in their hearts on this evening 
and will be thrust into their lives. And we see it played out into their next several days. But I want us to notice something here. Jesus is giving advice to them. Notice that the remedy to the coming wave of heart trouble is not, is not to avoid the day of trouble. That's not the remedy in God's plan. Now, now listen, this could very much help us and inform our prayer practice. Because I know, and perhaps it's your tendency too, that when we climb into the prayer closet and we begin to get wind that there's a day of heart trouble coming, there's a day of difficulty that is showing up on the horizon, it could be some medical diagnosis, it could be some behavioral issues, it could be things are coming apart in marriage. And and we're looking at this day of trouble come and our entire prayer world begins to be about, oh God, don't let me taste that day. Keep me from the day of difficulty. Now Jesus' remedy wasn't about how to avoid the day. Although there is, I believe we'll learn in heaven, many days that God has allowed us to avoid. But his remedy was what to do when the day comes. Because in this world, you will have tribulation. He tells them that. That passage is from this evening when they're together. But of course, that's not the end of the passage, right? Take courage, though, for I have overcome the world. And he's going to direct us towards believing something about him. But let me start with where he starts. Because he tells his disciples something in the form of a command. It's an imperative statement when he turns to his disciples and he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Do not let your hearts go there. That's what he's saying to them. Don't do it. You don't do it. You don't let your hearts go there. Your hearts are going to want to go there. Don't let your hearts go there. Right? The construction there, if you've forgotten your grammar, it's an imperative statement. It's telling us something to do. It says it may indicate a command to do something in the future, which involves, listen, continuous or repeated action. Or when it's negated, as in this case, a command to stop doing something. Continuous call to stop doing something. That's what this is. This is not a one-time thing. This isn't Jesus saying, hey, let's just get this down tonight, guys. I'm going to be gone tomorrow. Can we just throw the switch here tonight? Let not your hearts be troubled. Can everybody find that switch? We're going to flip it tonight. And then from now on, you won't have any issues of your heart being troubled. That's not what he said. He tells them in such a way that tonight and tomorrow and next month and next year, do not let your heart go there. Don't let your heart be troubled. Now, I find this to be very helpful, but a little bit cornering, to be honest with you. Because it corners me about what's going on in my heart. Especially when we're feeling troubled. Because when we're feeling troubled, it's, it's, it's often a time where we want to gather sympathy from others. Um, you know, we, we don't have this sense that we just shot ourselves in the foot. Stuff's been going on, you understand. 
the day of trouble has come. And, and I just find myself underneath it. And, and, and I'm troubled by that. Well, listen, I want to introduce something that... Uh, I'm, I'm, this is probably going to be a little bit rubbing some the wrong way. But, you know, this passage introduces me to responsibility. Responsibility. Now, you and I live in an age of no one wants to take responsibility. Especially, especially in the realm of what's going on in the troubled heart. What's mixed up in a troubled heart? Well, there's thoughts. There's emotions that are mixed up in the troubled heart. And we live in a day where you're not being told to take responsibility for that. If anything, you're being told that you're a victim of everything from the way you were raised to the genetic disposition that you have to the dysfunctional people that are all around you. And they are all around you. I was reading an article related to this and this guy talks about people come from dysfunctional families and he cites this statistic. Ninety-something percent of people come from dysfunctional families. That is so not true. A hundred percent of people come from dysfunctional families. <laughs> I don't know where this guy gets his stats from. I'd like to move there. Got a few people aren't dysfunctional. Listen, everybody's dysfunctional. Welcome to the world where sin has touched all of our lives. So the idea that we're going to come to this point in our lives, you know, hey, I'm 34 years old and got my first wound. <laughs> I finally got scathed. <laughs> no, no. You were raised by aliens or what? You're raised by people. You got, you got gigged a long time ago. You got hurt a long time ago. And you're living as damaged goods. Everyone is. Now, do you think Jesus doesn't know that? He doesn't qualify, let not your hearts be troubled, well, unless you got issues with this or that or this or that. No. What? This is great news. And it's, it's good news and it's bad news because, quite honestly, some of us like to be victims. And so it's bad news if that's the way we were wired. But it's good news if you're sick of being a victim. It's very good news because this tells me I don't have to let my heart be troubled. See, see, today we have taken conditions like anger and depression and fear and anxiety. And we, we've sort of just created this idea that we just kind of find ourselves in that condition. Like, poof, mysteriously, I'm an angry person, depressed. Just how did we get there? Well, I don't know. It just came upon me. Just I began at some point to feel this way. Now listen, I don't want to make light of those things. But neither do I want to treat them like they're so unusual. Anger, being depressed, being fearful. Welcome to the planet. Right? Because we are born, as Job says, to trouble. And there will be tribulation, and you will soak your pillow at night with tears. See, there is an element, though, that I'm concerned about that, that these are treated as conditions that come upon us and not conditions that we contribute to. Okay? Now, I will make room for this because I know somebody's going to go bad on me on this. 
in the scale of human experience here, whether it's anger, depression, uh, any of the emotional elements that mentally touch our lives, there would be some on this end of the scale who are having some very unique experiences in this category that probably need some kind of unique attention. Now, what you don't want to do with that reality is be somebody who's way over here who's having normal interactions with things like anger and depression and anxiety. Normal. You're, you're part of the human family here. Normal. And then say, no, I'm part of the 5%. See, everybody can't be part of the 5%. And we live in a world where everybody's part of the 5%. And the way to treat the 5% is now getting shoved down to the people who have their first day of feeling a little blue. Okay, that's not responsible. It's not responsible. Neither is it biblical. And, and if we were honest and we looked at our patterns of depression, our patterns of anger, our patterns of fear, I bet you'll find out... You're not just suddenly in a condition. You have taken up hammer and nails and have built quite a bit of the condition through the way you think, the way you feel, and the ignoring of the Bible telling us things like this. Let not your heart be troubled. Don't let it go there. Well, I've been letting it go there for the last 10 years. Well, well, don't then treat this like it's some mystery that you don't know where it came from. It, it has a starting point. There are consequences to our thought lives and the patterns that we create in our lives. So now, now listen, I, I know I'm, I'm pushing the envelope on, on how people sort through these issues. But quite honestly, you're not hearing this from anywhere else. Every once in a while, you get a, a talk show host like uh, who's Dr. Laura. Right, you ever listen to Dr. Laura? I haven't listened to Dr. Laura in years. But Dr. Laura was one of those people when she gave advice, some of her advice was, get over it. You know, that kind of advice. Take responsibility for your life, you know, kind of a thing. And, you know, there's a realm in which that sounds so unkind. But, you know, when you live in the freedom of doing what the Bible says we can do, it's not unkind to suggest to somebody. Some of us here this morning need to hear Jesus say, take responsibility for your emotions and your thoughts. And do not let your hearts be troubled any longer. The Bible says things like John 14, Matthew 6. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Listen, that is incredibly good news because in the, in the sense when I feel like all I can be is anxious right now, that's not true. It's not true because by the spirit of God and by the truth of God's word, I'm being told to not be anxious because I don't have to be. That's radical, isn't it? That's far out. Colossians three, verse two, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Set your mind, take your mind from that which is engulfing it and overcoming it and overwhelming it and set it somewhere else. Now, you're not going to find your mind in a different place than where you last put it. You know, I've lost my mind. Um, no, it's where you put it last. <laughs> like everything else, right? It's where you put it last. 
So if you set your mind on certain things, you're going to get the experience that comes from those things. But yet the Bible is telling me as a new creation in Christ, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, given power that I didn't have before, to now set my mind somewhere else. Because I can do it. And I must do it. Philippians 4. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Now, now, before we diagnose ourselves as having a condition that is out of our abilities, out of our control, we have to answer the tough question of, am I doing that? The Bible commands me to do it. These are commands. I'm commanded to rejoice. It doesn't just say rejoice, don't have a reason, just rejoice. No, it has reasons for it. So it provides arguments to us to give us genuine reason for rejoicing. Genuine reason for not being anxious. So I'm called to manage my mind and what it thinks on. Now, let me just tell you, this is not easy to do. As a matter of fact, if you want to talk difficult Olympic sports, ain't nothing harder than this. There is nothing harder for you to manage in your life than your thoughts. I guarantee you that. I've not found anything. Right? Whether you join Biggest Loser or you're having a hard time disciplining yourself to go run, hey, I can run and run and run, and I hate running. Easier than I can control my thoughts. My thoughts want to take off. And isn't it weird? I mean, they take off in the worst locations, and, and you just, it's like you just start taking the scenery and start shooting pictures. It's like, wow, look at, look at how horrible that could be. You know, the more I think about this, I never thought it could get that bad. Take a picture of that quick. It's, we just live in this stuff. And listen, ain't nobody here exempt from this. I'm not exempt from this. Okay, I have my own issues that touch my life in their own way that cause my mind to go where it doesn't need to go. And if the Lord was just desiring, hey, Keith, how about a fresh illustration this week? Preach on this. How about a fresh illustration this week? This makes me very careful about the subjects I choose, which ones I give away to the other pastors. <laughs> Two nights this week, and I, I am not a guy who wakes up at night. You know, when I, I stay up late, but when I go to bed, I go to bed. And, and it takes something extraordinary to wake me up. Two nights this week, just wake up middle of the night. This is my wife. I could probably join my wife. She kind of wakes up middle of the night like... Wide awake. <laughs> I wake up middle of the night wide awake and in comes a flood of anxious thoughts. A flood of them. You know, if you have this issue happen at night, it's worse at night because you're, you know, you're kind of, 
you're kind of half there anyway. And so fighting in that moment, and I am having to get these thoughts off, get off of me. Well, they don't want to get off of me. And, you know, and I'm telling them, get off, and I'm, I'm, I'm having to do this. I'm having to set my mind on things above. I'm having to think about truth. I'm having to think about God. I'm having to think about His purpose in my life and why I can have peace in this moment. And I'm having to fight. And these thoughts aren't saying, oh, oh, he's going to fight tonight. Oh, all right, well, we're not going to hang around for that. No, it's kind of like they just put on armor. You know, it's like, strap up, boys. He's going to resist us. And they just come in with more. And so you know, I'm laying in bed. And, and I'm just having to, to fight for my life. Next night, wake up again. Totally different set of anxious thoughts come pouring in. And I'm having to do exactly what these verses say for me to do. In that moment, was, was I out of control? No, I was tempted to let my heart be troubled. I was very tempted to do that. And for a moment, it felt like the right thing to do. Because anxieties and fears always have a sense of reality with them. Right? How many of you guys wake up in the middle of the night and you're just kind of like, I just know an asteroid's going to hit the house tonight. I just know it. I, know, I can't sleep. An asteroid's going to hit. That's not what you're doing, is it? Fears come in the categories where you live. So they bring with them facts and real information and blow them up big and distort them. And they suck God out of the picture. They tell you, huh, what are you going to do with this on your own? Huh? This thing that's really in your life right now. So when you've got to go fight these thoughts, when you've got to take up Jesus' word and let not your hearts be troubled, it will be in the moment where you feel like I can't do anything but let it be troubled. And in that moment, I better know this verse very well. I, know, I better know that I'm going to fight to the end because in the end, my heart is not troubled. I will fight way through this trouble to the point where I am not troubled. The Bible doesn't make us victims of our thinking. It makes us responsible for our thinking. Do not prematurely diagnose yourself with a condition that you believe that you have when you haven't done the Bible work to train yourself in how you think. Christians today want to just throw that responsibility off I don't want to think, I don't want to wrestle, I don't want to contend for my thoughts. I'm just going to throw that off. Well, and then I end up in a condition where late, and now the only label that suits me is depressed or anxious or angry, volatile. That's all that suits me. Well, until you've done the Bible work, you don't know whether this works and whether or not it would have set you free a long time ago. And be careful what it is that you are quick to substitute to fix that. Jesus puts this in my lap. Keith, do not let your heart be troubled. Now let me read to you for a moment from a man named Richard Sibbs. He was a Puritan writer. Uh, This man, unlike other Puritan writers, was truly a Puritan language writer, which means he's not easy to read. But he is, he is writing from a time frame when they thought about the condition of a man's soul, his heart, differently than we do. We live in an era that's, that has mixed psychology and man's ideas with some of what the Bible has to say. And it's come up with some different conclusions. These guys weren't doing that. And he's referencing, turn back to Psalm 42. He's referencing this psalm, the psalm where David is 
crying himself to sleep and wondering, where, where is God? And if you cycle through this psalm, you're going to see, this is David. If you wanted to do some kind of an EKG of his heart, this is David. All right? Doing well, not doing well. Even in this one psalm, doing well, not doing well. All right? So there's a sense of, let not your hearts be troubled. The command that is continuous, you see it get lived out in David's response. In verse 3 we read earlier, my tears have been my food. And then look in verse 5. He speaks to his heart and he says, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God, why are you going through this soul heart? Why are you so troubled? Because you believe something different than what I'm going to tell you to believe. And he tells his heart to put its hope in God, not in these circumstances that have driven tears out of his eyes, not in the, the season of difficulty that he's in. But in this moment, with all that's going on out there in my heart needs to be a hope in God. Now he fights his way to be able to say that. He's got some good things to say. Look at verse 7. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy, as with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Can you see? Okay, David started and now he's he's losing. Right. I don't know if this is probably at night. He's not thinking well. They thoughts decided arm up, boys. David wants to resist us tonight. And they came back in with force and David's right back where he was in the beginning. But then in verse 11. Again, he talks to his soul. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? See, this is, this is the way the Christian mind has to fight battles. And the first time you step in with truth and resist fears and anxieties and imaginations doesn't mean you will be successful that first time or the second or maybe even the third. Listen to... Mr. Sibbs here, giving us lessons in what it looks like to let not your heart be troubled. The Puritans had that little concept of taking your soul to task. It's like, you know, your soul at some point becomes your sort of your adversary. When it goes bad and your heart goes bad, you you got to almost turn on it and start telling it and commanding it and dealing with it. Listen to what he says here. He says, we see here in David passions intermingled with comforts and comforts with passions. And what bustling there is before David can get the victory over his own heart. You have some short-spirited Christians that if they be not comforted at the first, they think all labor with their hearts is in vain and thereupon give way to their grief. Oh, way too many of us. We treat heart treatment like it's going to be easy. It's not going to be easy. So be prepared to fight at that level more than once. 
But we see in David, as distemper ariseth upon distemper, so he gives check upon check and charge upon charge to his soul, until at length he brought it to a quiet temper. In physic, if one purge will not carry away the vicious humor, then we add a second. If that will not do it, we take a third. So should we deal with our souls. See, some of us have troubled hearts because we're not doing the mental work the Bible has always said we needed to do. And the trouble in our soul is the fruit of that. He goes on and says, Add unto this a childish kind of peevishness. I don't want to use that word, peevishness. It's irritability, crotchetiness. When they have not what they would have like children, they throw away all. Abraham himself, wanting children, Genesis, undervalued all other blessings. Now, this peevishness is increased by a too much flattering of their grief. Like we, we, we make a big deal, almost like our grief is so big that we can't possibly do anything but be overcome by it. So far as to justify it, like Jonas, I do well to be angry even unto death. He said, some with Rachel are so peremptory that they will not be comforted. This was said in Jeremiah, as if they were in love with their grievances. Have you ever heard the phrase, misery loves company? Well, some company loves misery. Right? I mean, there, there is, and you can do this. You don't always have to be the person whose glass was always half empty or about to be empty. You can become that as you go through life. And you can get to where you sort of love misery. Now listen, if you dig around in that, you're going to find some really interesting motivations as to why. Why would, why would someone love misery? Why would they love to highlight how everybody's against them and every, nothing goes my way. And, and that's the first thing that they see is a negative thing. Well, if you think about it, you know, there's always, there's always pride providing for us motivation. If you're wondering why you do most of what you do, if it's not godly, you might just start with pride and say, okay, now how is this a manifestation of pride? And you probably will discover it. But, you know, if, if I'm a person who's there's always a gray cloud, there's always something gone wrong. See, you understand, I could... I could never be at 100%, you know. I just, I just, you know, because of all the stuff and the limitations and the stuff about me and the way I was raised and the, all these factors that make me less than 100%, you know, I, I can grow to really like that. See, because if I'm like 70% of who I could be, well, then I understand, and I'm sure you understand too, why it is that I'm failing the way I'm failing. You do, right? I mean, I'm 70%. I'm... If I was 100% now, you know, if I didn't have all this stuff, I'd be right up there with the best of you. Okay? But since I've got these issues and these problems and these unique things about me that make me who I am, you know, I'm just, I'm not able to succeed at the same level as that guy. That's what keeps me from being so jealous of him, by the way. Because, you know, if I could, you know, if I'd have had his parents, if I'd have been raised like that, what are we saying about all this? We're giving ourselves an excuse for why we are the way we are. And we want excuses because all of us want to look a certain way. And if I'm going to look like a failure, I better have a good reason for it. See, what I don't want to be able to say is, listen, I'm a failure because I won't take responsibility for something in my life. That, that's why I fail at that. You want to know why that's so bad in my life? Because I'm lazy. 
and I won't deal with it. And I won't change it. <laughs> Nobody likes that idea. Nobody wants to thrust that forward. And does it mean that we don't have limiting factors in our life? Yes, we do. But they're not excuses. See, what God does in this passage and in this truth overcomes so much. This is, this is not Christianity submitted to humanity. It is humanity submitted to God. And what a difference he comes in and makes in our lives. What change, what ability, what faith to believe when God comes on the scene. Listen, be careful that if you're a person who loves misery, loves the fact that there's some issues, you almost don't want to let go of them. Because if they went away, you, you, you'd have to just like take responsibility for your life like everybody else does. Some of us don't want to do that. So be careful why we love our misery. He goes on and says, willful men are most vexed, they're most frustrated in their crosses, in their difficulties. No men are more subject to discontentments than those who would have all things after their own way. The more you want what you want, the more difficulty you will have with being content. Because you can't get everything to line up in your universe, can you? It just won't go there. The harder you try, the more frustrated you get. The more frustrated you get, the more angry you become. And the more irritable you become. The more difficult to be around. And you're wondering why. Why is it that I don't get along with anybody? You know, what is it? My breath? Is it, you know? Well, you know, back here, you started a pattern. Uh, I want what I want. And when I can't get what I want, I'm hell to be around. It probably didn't start that way, but it grew that way. And so some of the condition of our life is because we've let things take place in our life that never should have been allowed. One more thought from Mr. Sibbs. He says, we are prone to cast down ourselves. We are accessory to our own trouble and weave the web of our own sorrow and hamper ourselves in the cords of our own twining. The ground, therefore, of our disquiet is chiefly from ourselves, though Satan will have a hand in it. We see many, like sullen birds in a cage, beat themselves to death. This casting down of ourselves is not from humility, but from pride. We must have our will, or God shall not have a good look from us. And how many of us, <laughs> do not raise your hands, but you know, that's a lot of what moodiness is, right? Well, I'm just prone to moodiness. Okay, can I translate that? Right? That means so if I'm not getting my way, no one gets to enjoy my presence. Is that what moodiness means? Because moodiness can come to an end as soon as the phone rings. <laughs> right? I'm in a bad mood. I'm barking at people. I'm chewing somebody's head off and the phone rings. Hello? <laughs> no. Great. Yeah. And you hang back up and you go back to your mood. It's like... <laughs> What is that? It's kind of like, well, I'm not getting my way, so no one gets to enjoy anything around me. I'm not enjoying anything. You don't get to enjoy anything. It's like, okay, well, where's, where's our quest for the glory of God in that? Where is my passion that God received glory while I'm not getting my way? God, you don't even get a good look from me. Oh, I can't pray. I can't read. Oh, it's not that we can't. I don't want to. Why? Because I'm not getting my way. God shall not have a good look from us, but as pettish and peevish children, we hang our heads in our bosom because our wills are crossed. 
Therefore, in all our troubles, we should look first home to our own hearts and stop the storm there. For we may thank our own selves, not only for our troubles, but likewise for overmuch troubling ourselves in trouble. I had a whole other message here, but quite often our biggest trouble is not from the situation that's come to us, but from how we have responded to the situation that's come to us. Usually life gets very complicated and messes become big and damage gets done, not because what washed up on the shoreline of my life was trouble, but how I responded to it when it came and then I became angry and then I did this and I hurt this one and all of a sudden this relationship problems have been brought into this thing now and, and misery has been stirred in in a whole nother level. It wasn't just the trouble, it's what I brought to the season that came, I believe, because we were not guarding our hearts the way in which the Bible tells us we can. Let not your hearts be troubled. Okay, go back to John. Jesus, thank you for telling us not to let that happen. How do we not let that happen? On the eve of uncertainty and trouble, Jesus, how do we not let that happen? Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe. Believe what? Very specific revelation here. Believe in fate. Believe in case sera, sera. In the end, everything works out. Believe in the power of positive thinking. Believe in the indomitable spirit of man. What do we, what do we believe in? Well, in this passage, two things get highlighted. He's going to call on us to believe in a person. And he's going to call on us to believe in promises. Two things. I'm going to guard my heart from trouble. I'm going to have to believe and know this person that I'm believing And I'm going to have to believe in the promises that he makes to us. Now, notice immediately, believe in God. Believe also in me. And before we get to the end of this chapter, the Holy Spirit is going to be brought in. This is a a presentation of the Trinity in this chapter. We're called on to believe in the triune God. Now, what we're not called to do in an age of profound spirituality is just to become spiritual in this moment. Read some spiritual self-help book and just become spiritual and just start believing that everything works good and everything turns out fine. And just look on the positive and be a spiritual person. That is not what this Bible verse teaches. Neither are we introduced to some vague notion of God. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And then later on, you're going to be told to believe in the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. Very specific. Even Philip, who sort of raises some questions, gets rebuked a bit. Philip, I've been with you this long and and, and you don't know me well enough, Philip. You should know this by now. See, so vague spirituality is not what rescues the heart from trouble. You know, these, these quips that we have, you know. Oh, just, you know, depending on the man upstairs, you know. He's going to have to come through for me, the man upstairs. Well, what the heck are you talking about? Your landlord? He's going to cut your rent? What are you thinking? Well, you know, the man upstairs, you know? He's going to come through for me. Um, wow. Philip got rebuked for a whole lot less than that. <laughs> and that's what you know God as, the man upstairs. You know, I mean, I don't find that anywhere in here. 
God's called a lot of things in the Bible, but that ain't one of them. Well, you know, I, I, don't, know, I don't even say Jesus. It's a little too, uh, you know. Wow. If that's where God is in your life, that you've got some serious trouble on your hands. Because the heart that worships God ought to be a whole lot more intimate with him. Well, let me ask this. What about believing in God and believing in Christ is relevant to my time of heart trouble? Like my heart begins to go through trouble. Katrina hits. All these uncertainties come. All these losses mount. The future's got a shadow cast over it. You know, how is God relevant to that? Been to the doctor, been diagnosed with an illness that's going to debilitate my life. Maybe even a terminal illness. You know, how's, how's God relevant to that? I've been married all these years and my husband has left. I have children to raise. I'm not prepared. How am I going to pay bills? Right? The wave of emotions that, that perhaps has been controlling in your life and you've been frustrated and bumping up against it. Listen, how, how is God relevant to that? Listen, you know, it's almost as though we come to the Bible like the Bible's got kindergarten answers for life. It's like, Keith, you don't understand. And this has been said. I have real problems. <laughs> you know, what, what, what? Like, this is for the junior league problems. You know, here's some revelation. Well, you know, I, I need to see a professional. I, 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 you know, I have real problems. You know, I'm like little church problems. This is the guy who designed you. This is, this is the master doctor engineer who knows every fiber of your being. Now, be careful that sometimes when we're shopping for a professional, what we're really shopping for is somebody that we can pay to tell us what we want to hear. See, I can tell you right now, you can come to us for free and hear what you don't want to hear. (laughs) Welcome to a counseling appointment. You know what you don't want to hear when, when your life is out of control and your heart is troubled and you're weighed down? Listen, what I'd like to hear in that moment is I'd like to have somebody say, well, tell me about your parents. <laughs> How were you treated as a child? Did you? Were you afraid often? And were you? It's like and everybody else. Yeah. Oh, that, that helps me. I am this way because of nothing I've done. You know? I don't have any responsibility in this. Everybody else is screwed up. And therefore, I'm just living in the wake of everybody else being screwed up. Thank you. How much is that? (laughs) And you come to the Bible and you get counsel like, okay, not not unsympathetic, but let not your heart be troubled. Okay? Not anymore. Huh? Yeah. Believe God. Believe also in me. And believe in my promises. Wait, well, you don't understand my past. No, that's okay. This, this, Bible's not, this verse is not about your past. It's about your future. And it's about your present. And it's about the abilities that God has given by the Spirit and His Word of truth to liberate us. This is not a word that's subjected to our experience. Our experience gets subjected to the Word of God. And so I get to hear that in spite of all that's brought me to this point, real experiences, real disappointments, real heart trouble going on, leading to me to this point, I have an answer here that I can believe God. 
and change the trouble that's in my heart. Believing in God means fixing your hope in who he is. Bruce Milne says faith needs adequate grounding, however, if it is to experience serenity and to overcome the troubled hearts of the disciples. The effectiveness and strength of faith are bound up with the greatness and dependability of the God in whom the faith reposes. How well do I know God? When I'm in that moment and anxiety floods and fears come into me or the temptation to give into some kind of sin comes, what do I know about God that I can pull out immediately and cling to it and tell my mind to think on it and be affected by it? What about just the the names of God? Yahweh. The self-existent God. The I am that I am. El Shaddai. God Almighty. All-sufficient. See, there's news in that. It's not like God reports to anyone. It's not like God would ever have a need. You can't show up at the mercy seat of God with a request and a need in your life and have God say, Oh, you know, I just gave off that last gift of healing to the guy who was just here. And we're not getting any more in for, I don't know, I'll call the distributor and see when it's coming. You can never get that response from God because he is the self-existent God. He takes from no one. He needs no one. He can supply all of your needs according to his riches because his riches are infinite. So I'm having a hard time. I'm questioning, well, am I hoping in El Shaddai, in Yahweh? It's who God is make a difference to me. Jehovah Jireh, these names of God in the Old Testament. The Lord, my provider. Are you fearful about provision right now in your life? Many of us would have reason to do that. Am I meditating on and thinking on God, my provider? Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals. God, you are the God who brings healing into bodies. Eternal healing. God, I pray temporary healing. Jehovah Rohe, the Lord, my shepherd. That those beautiful pictures of this God of the universe with all of his power and might taking the role of a shepherd and caring with gentleness for his sheep, leading them into green pastures. With, they have no idea what's on the other side of that hill, but he knows. And he's going to get you there. Why? Because he's the Lord, my shepherd. He is Abba. Father. If you have an ounce of a father's heart, then you're in touch with a little bit of the infiniteness of God's father heart to care for your life and your needs. Do I meditate on those things? But Jesus says, believe in God. Then he says, believe also in me. It's an interesting little combination thought there. Believing in Christ means embracing the truth that we have open access to. To God's grace through the blood of Christ. Listen, the Father could be all these things to us, but sin has made a separation between you and your God. Believe in God, Jesus said. Believe also in me, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And he removes the barrier so that you and I have access to God. He's the great high priest who goes before God on our behalf, giving us access and stands and prays and makes intercession for us. Believe in God. Believe also in me. The ongoing ministry that I have opened heaven to you 
And you have access to the throne of God's grace. You, right now, believer in Christ, can access God and all of His goodness, all of His wealth, all of His power, are now accessible because of the blood of Christ. This is is very important because condemnation and unworthiness will make you not access God, won't it? You fail at something over and over and over again, and you start believing, I can't go to God. I can't go to God. Listen, believe in God. Believe also in me. The one who removes all condemnation from your life. Can you come? Yes, you can come. Even with what I've done, yes, you can come and have access to God himself. This passage in Isaiah 41, your outline. This is a good cause and effect Good meditative verse. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth. This is God making a case. Okay, this is the cause part. God's making his case. He's trying to convince you why not to be afraid. Why not to have fear? And he's giving you, he's loading your gun with ammunition. You whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not. See, those are cause and effect. The effect of God having done that in my life is that I'm not to be afraid. If God (coughs) went through all this trouble, To come find me in the recesses of the earth, reveal himself to me, and make me his own. Do I have cause to be afraid if God did that? Well, that's not enough. He keeps going. For I am with you. Be not dismayed. Why? Because I am with you. For I am your God. I will strengthen you. Well, I'm afraid because I don't think I'm up for this. I don't think I can handle this. This goes beyond my abilities. So therefore, I'm afraid. And God attacks that. says, I'm with you. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Do not let your heart be troubled. You have great reason not to let it go there. Martin Luther says, it is not an insignificant matter here that the Lord rebuked the disciples. It's actually in Mark where he did that. For unbelief is the greatest sin that can be named. I wish I really got that. And I wish all of us got that. Because we're busy trying to avoid, we should be avoiding all sin. But it's like, oh, make sure we stay away from adultery and stay away from this sin and There's not a greater insult to God than unbelief. Because unbelief tells God, God, I don't think you can handle this. I don't think you're up for it. I don't think you can pull this off, God. Or I don't know if you're really for me. Or you would. But I'm not quite sure you are. You know, in the face of the Son of God on the cross, we question whether God is for us. It's an insult to God. Listen, we've got to stop treating unbelief like it's a petty sin. And these other ones. So you curse. Some of us are more upset when we curse. You with me? 
You hear some believer get in the car and slam the door and curse. You're like, oh, my gosh, you just said the word. And totally ignoring that they've been walking right before your eyes in blatant unbelief. Fearful about this, scared about that, angry about this, not accepting God's will. We're not upset about that. You used a curse word. Oh, my goodness. Look, can we can we swap this? Everybody just start cursing and stop unbelieving. Let's just flip this. Let's just be different as a church. Curse all you want, but don't dare not believe God. I think we'd still be allowed in sovereign grace if we did that. Let me get through this last part quickly here. Jesus says, believe in God, believe also in me. And then he says, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. will take you to myself. Where I am, you may be also. Jesus does two things. He says, believe in God. Believe in the Trinity, because he introduces the Holy Spirit in a bit. He says, believe also the promises of God. There's a place beyond this life. This is not your home. This is not where you will stay. This is temporary. Listen, this is, this is a difficult thing for modern Americans to hear. We vest ourselves in everything here, now. What can I have? There, there is, we've lost this sense of laying up treasure for ourselves in heaven. We are here on a temporary assignment. And, I won't read this verse, but you can go look it up. Romans chapter 8. These momentary light afflictions are working for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. As we look, and that passage is about looking away from this setting to a future setting. And he educates us along the way. And this might disappoint some of us, but it might explain a lot to many of us. He, He lets us know that this setting right here, has been subjected to futility by God. Everything on this planet has been touched by God in a strange way to make it all feel futile, to make it all feel empty in and of itself. Everything. Your marriage, your children, your money, your career, what you own, Does it mean those things are wrong? Obviously not they're wrong. They're not wrong. But when you pull God's eternal purpose out of them and you pull God out of them, what you have left is something that will never satisfy you. Why is that? Because God made it that way. He subjected it to futility in the hope that those who touched it would then look away from it to something else, to where my hope is to be. Listen, one of the reasons why my heart is so troubled is because I can't get what I want out of the things in my life. I'm trying to squeeze it out rather than realizing that was never put in my life for that reason. I need to put my hope in God and in His eternal purposes. And we'll get to this next, but His other promise is to believe in the presence of the Spirit that's coming. That's what he highlights in the next two chapters here. I'm going away, but I'm not leaving. And it's better that I go away, because if I go away, I'm going to send the comforter to you. Listen, do not let your hearts be troubled. Well, why not? 
because the presence of the Spirit of God is in you and you don't have to let it be that way. You have an ability in you. You have a power source. You have a person in you to work in you, to will and to do of His good pleasure. Now, as worship team comes back, let me answer this last question in your outline. But what does it mean to believe? Right? Everything in this passage hinges on believe. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe. Now, believe, unlike some other concepts in Christianity, is not a passive word. Right? There are passive concepts. You have been justified in Christ. That's a passive statement on your part. Not on God's part it wasn't. But on your part, it's a passive statement. You get to hear about it. It was done on your behalf. Okay, what do I do? I sit here and I embrace and receive the good of it. It's done. You are no longer under the law, but you're under grace. Okay, a passive statement. Right? I'm under under the grace of God. That's absolutely true. Yeah. It It doesn't call on me to do anything. It's not an imperative statement. It's just telling me what is. You cannot treat all of Christianity that way. Because every day when I wake up, every day when I wake up, it is true that I am justified. Every day when I wake up, it is true that I am under the grace of God. But every day when I wake up, I do not always believe. There are days when I'm unbelieving in what I think about my life or where it's headed or how something's going to turn out. This is an active word. It's a word of wrestling. It's a word of contending. It's a word of drawing near the truth of God. It's something you and I must choose to do if we ever want to live in the first part of the verse. Let not your hearts be troubled. And before we just go to a little time of prayer here, Mr. Piper's thought is too good to pass up. He says, this faith is the power that severs the root of sin. Sin has power because of the promises it makes to us. It talks like this. If you lie on your tax returns, you will have extra money to get what will make you happier. If you look at this pornography, you will have a surge of pleasure that is better than the joys of a clear conscience. If you eat these cookies when one is wa- one, no one is watching, it will soften your sense of woundedness and help you cope better than anything else just now. No one sins out of duty. We sin because we believe the deceitful promises that sin makes. Battling unbelief, listen, battling, that's what this is. Believing is a battle. Battling unbelief and fighting for faith in future grace means that we fight fire with fire. We throw against the promises of sin the promises of God. We take hold of some great promise of God made about our future and say to a particular sin, match that. Listen, believing is a battle. This morning, I want to put us in the crosshairs of believing God. I want to put us in the crosshairs of taking responsibility for my emotional and mental frame of mind. And to listen to this verse speak to us. Let not your hearts 
be troubled any longer. Believe this morning. Believe this morning. Believe. Believe God. Believe His promises. Now let's stand up together. And I want to give the Lord some opportunity to get access to our hearts here. Lord, it is true this morning. It was clearly and loudly true. August the 30th, 2005. That our hearts were incredibly tempted to trouble. And Lord, though we are in a different place as a city, as a community... Lord, other things have simply moved into the category of heart trouble. We find ourselves walking in here today, many of us, under the umbrella of our hearts are troubled. And whether we would translate that as merely saying, I'm not happy. I'm not a happy person. I'm not content. I'm not satisfied with my life. If I pause long enough to listen to my own heart, it's a bit depressing to hear what it says back to me. God, my heart is troubled. There would be some of you here this morning that your prayer this morning in the face of troubled heart needs to sound like that man who met Jesus. He called on him to believe in him. And the man said, I believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, this morning, would you graciously do that this morning? There are many here this morning whose desire is to believe, but Lord, they have to confess they do not. Having a hard time believing you, God. Believing in your promises, they've lost sight of your workings in their lives. They've lost sight of the greatness of your name. They've lost sight of the tenderness of your care as a father and a shepherd. And their prayer this morning is, God, I want to believe. Help. Help my unbelief. Lord, be help to us this morning. Because you have given us something by the Spirit. The good day when the Spirit would come to give us the ability to believe this morning. We have the ability to believe this morning. Lord, help us right now that hearts would turn away from letting our hearts be troubled. Listen listen to me this morning. Whatever it is that you're thinking through right now, here's the command of the God who loves you in your day of trouble. Do not let your heart be troubled any longer. Do not do it. Say to your soul, why are you so downcast? Oh, my soul, put your hope in God right now. Put your hope in God. Stop hoping in something that's not happening. Stop putting your hope in some desire that keeps 
like a carrot dangling in front of you. You never can seem to get it. Therefore, your life never feels complete. It never feels like you've ever arrived. God was the destination of your life. He created you for himself. If you have God in your life, you don't need anything else. He will be faithful to supply you what you need. You have him. Believe God, the sufficient God, the loving, accepting God, the forgiving and cleansing God, the God who's at work in your life, the God who's causing all things to work together for good because he's called you. You are his. The God who strengthens you and says, I will help you. I'm with you. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe God. Believe in His Son. And believe in His Spirit. We began this service remembering our day of trouble. August the 30th, 2005. I think I'm right in saying this. None of us we're thinking about August the 30th, 2009, were we? Would have changed the way you felt, wouldn't it? It was the uncertainty that was killing us. But today it's certain, isn't it? Today, we don't have to walk by faith. We've arrived at a destination. We, it's, it's sight now. It was faith back then. But let's learn a lesson from this. Because right now, you're, you're facing, in some category of your life, you're facing an August... The 30th, 2005 moment. And you don't know what's going to happen. Well, let's play this video and, and then we're going to sing. And we're going to hold on to look what God does when you don't know what he's going to do. Rejected all your ways. How wonderful the Father. 